All right. Uh, that said, um, we're going to study, uh, the verses we're going to study today are, are small in verses, but they are one of the, the underlying river of feeling and belief and how we do things is, is there. So let's turn to uh, Luke 10. Before, before we, uh, we need to do a little background on this. Um, this is going to happen at times, this whole experience is six months removed from the Savior's uh, uh, death and resurrection. This is done at festival time. Remember, he will, he will be killed during Passover in the spring, right about now. And this happens back at the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, happening in October-ish. Okay, it's the harvest festival, but it's also Sukkot. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles, the sense that the the uh, Israelites would build little uh, shelters over them, Sukkot. Uh, and but uh, if you're gonna, if you are an Orthodox Jew now, you will build a little Sukkot out in your backyard or out on your porch or something like that. But it has to have slats in it so you can see the stars. And you kind of inv- and enjoy people. People will come. You spend time in your Sukkot. And you break out you know, your vegetables from the garden and all those kind of things. This is also a time when the Savior's popularity has now waned. Remember, at the height, people were everywhere. And they're wanting to be fed. And then he says, you just wanted to be fed. So then it says they begin to go away. So his popularity starts to go which raises the possibility for the Sanhedrin that now we can finally catch this guy and put him to death. So now they start to intrude more. They're looking for an opportunity uh, to, to kill him. That inhibits a little bit what he can do and where he can go and how he does it. He kind of hides out a little bit during the Feast of Tabernacles because the question is, in Jerusalem, will Jesus of Nazareth come? Is he going to show his face? And they're all waiting. Some because they want to hear him. He now has two and a half years worth of um, uh, stories and people walking around that were lepers and crippled. And so there's a lot of buzz around Jesus of Nazareth. And they're waiting. And he's got to be very careful how he does it. So he's going to slide into town quietly. He sends in the disciples first. And then he slides into town. And of all the place in the vicinity, where would Jesus decide to go and be during during the holidays, during Thanksgiving. He's gonna, where's he going to go? His closest friends. His closest friends. In this case, it's Mary in Mary. Bethany, which is just up the, up the hill from Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, and, and it's going to be up, up the top of the Mount of Olives, up and over. Bethany is right there. He's in the neighborhood. He's coming to Dallas, but he's going to spend the night in Plano, kind of thing. Okay? So, so he's kind of hiding out a little bit. Now, he's going to spend the time with uh, Mary and Martha and their, and their brother Lazarus. Now, before we look at this, I want to just kind of jump ahead because there's actually 
three chapters here, and you have to kind of put these chapters together to get the full picture of what we're looking at with these two, with these wonderful women. Uh, so let's hop over. Uh, I linked it to John 11. So let's hop over to John 11. And I don't want to do the entire story here because I imagine next fall we're going to want to talk more about the experience with Lazarus. But I, but I want, there's a couple of things that you need to see here. Uh, there's a certain man who was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. Without getting into too great a detail, the, what I've been able to read background-wise, what the scholars believe, and also through this, Mary, in terms of discipleship, is kind of a big deal. Mary has a reputation uh, as being probably one of the disciples. And so it, it's not an accident that there's starting with the town of Mary and her sister Martha. When we're in Martha's house, it is Martha's house. But Mary is, plays a prominent role here in the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and, and, by, and so he's going to say, you know Mary. Let me tell you who Mary is. Here's the reputation. And he's not even going to tell the story till the next chapter. But in this case, he's going to say, he went up to Bethany, the, the, the city of Mary and Martha. And you guys are reading, because this is John, and he's writing to the people, trying to remember the signs. I need to convince you that this is Jesus of Nazareth. And so, you remember Mary. Which one is Mary. Well, you may not have remembered her name, but you remember the story. We all know the story. It's like telling the nativity scene. You remember the, about the, the uh, Bethlehem and the uh, stable and all that? He's going, you know Mary. We're not quite sure which one. Oh, Mary. It was Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus. Oh, that Mary. Oh, her. Yeah. We know that one. Because she anointed him with oil that cost one year's wages of denarii. Astronomical sum. And by the way, you remember Mary. She's the one that really understood he was dying when everybody else was in denial. That Mary. Oh, yeah, her. We've all, we, we tell her stories around the campfire. It was, that, it was that Mary, and his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. Um, and then we get five. And Jesus, what? Loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, in the story that we're going to, in what we're looking at, we need to keep foremost in our mind that he loved this family. And in particular, he loved these sisters. And they were very, very dear to him. Think about when you're planning, where are we going to spend Thanksgiving? And you're like, the people most important to me, I want to spend Thanksgiving with, or Christmas. Where's he going to spend Sukkot? With the people most important to him. He loved Mary and Martha. Back to Luke 10. Now, 
It came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, Bethany, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. By the way, there has been enough, there's been speculation for a long time. Obviously, the, the amount of money that Martha was able to spend on the ointment and the fact that they had a home in Bethany uh, has led to speculation among a lot of biblical scholars. There's a chance, for instance, that their last name might have been Arimathea is one common uh, belief that's out there. Or that they might have been uh, related to Zacharias who came to the Lord quietly and was taught about baptism. So that might have been the home of a Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, not Zechariah. Nicodemus, yes. Might have been the might have been the children of Nicodemus. Don't know. But there's just there is a sense that there was some prominence here with these with this family because of where they lived and the and the money that was available to them. Okay. So there's no record of their parents. There really isn't. See, I always assume they disinherited. It. <laughs> that they were just orphan kids, and uh, but no, that their parents had passed on. Oh, and house. you know what? That's a possibility, I guess. Okay, so Mary, uh, so Martha received him into her house. It is labeled her house. So picture uh, up up the hill, coming from Jerusalem. Here comes the Savior and all of the disciples that are close by him. So it's kind of a big entourage. So they had to have a big enough place, also that would that would seat and handle this big an entourage. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet. Also meaning... Martha did too. She was with those that sat at His feet. wasn't just, everybody is there and she's going to sit there all by her lonesome. She is among those who sit at His feet... And we generally call those disciples. She was among those sitting at his feet. Okay? She was one of those. And heard his word. So here it is that here's the Savior, and he's and they're going to sit at his feet while he's teaching them. And remember, the Savior seems never to have missed any opportunity to teach. So they're there, they're sitting at his feet, and he's obviously teaching. And they're hearing his word. They're not just kind of talking about how the local football team did. You know, he's, it's the word. Okay? But Martha was cumbered about much serving. Now, give me another word for cumbered. Frustrated? Frustrated. Stressed. Stressed. Annoyed. Annoyed. The Greek word is distracted. She was distracted. There were other items that were pulling her away from her, her attention here. That other item being Mary. Okay. Martha was distracted about much serving. Um, now, by the way, let me just stop as we're going through this. I'm very, very aware, sisters, there's probably not a story that is told more often in Relief Society settings than the Mary Martha dilemma. And this is right about the time that I feel this sense of umbrage start to occur 
in the hearts of some people going, yeah. Is that her starve? Okay, so she's distracted about much serving and she came to him and said, Lord, dost that dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Okay, now let me throw out two possibilities right at this moment. You tell me tell me which one seems to fit better. Scenario number one. The Savior stops right in the middle of his words and he says, Martha, put down that stuff. Come in here. I'm talking about some important things. I love you. I want you to hear this story. So put that stuff away. We'll get to it in a few minutes. We, it's all right if we're hungry for a little bit. I need you to hear this. Okay? So don't worry about it, Martha. Where are you? Come, come sit down. Quit getting lunch ready. Come, President Monson is speaking. And you're not being able to hear while you're bustling around. He, come here, President Monson. Well, you guys are going to be hungry in a minute. No, come here. Come sit. Okay? That's number one. Here's scenario number two. I am so sorry, Martha. We were just, we were just kind of thoughtless. Mary, why don't you go help your sister? Uh, because, and we'll just kind of wait. We'll hold off on the important stuff. I'm sorry, Martha. We just kind of got caught up in this, and we're sorry we left you kind of hanging out there all by yourself. Mary, well, go help her. Scenario I don't think you, I don't think <laughs> you, you, you take scenario number one. Martha, stop it. Come in here. I don't, I don't agree with either one. <laughs> okay. You, you don't like either one? <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, we're concerned with who they are and... Uh, Oh, you're a guy, though. The women are in there surveying. <laughs> 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 so sorry, sorry. I would love to hear what John Taylor said. John Taylor said that Mary and Martha were the wives, two of the wives, yeah. of the Christ himself, and he named all five. Those two were yeah, and I ain't even going there. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I know that the brethren have kind of said that, but it's not one of those things that we actually teach at the moment, even though John Taylor said that. Plus, it'll get me in a heap of trouble, and I ain't going there. <laughs> I think that from the, the terminology here, they were very comfortable with him. Yes. Right. Yeah, so, so, so are you advocating one or two? Let me just throw this, this out there just, just to keep this in mind. If we hop over to John 12, 
This is the celebratory feast. It is Passover six months later, but they're going to repeat the whole thing again at Passover in the house. And look at what's happening there. Verse 2, they're celebrating Lazarus' return from the dead. And they made and they made him a supper and Martha served. There's no there's no other comments whatsoever. Martha served. No. I think every one of us have a different way of expressing our love to the Lord, and I think that was Martha's way to express her love. But down in forty two is is the thing that gets me the most that yes. he says it's almost like he's saying, You don't need to do all this food. Just just give us a little sandwich or a little piece of bread and fish. I'm telling you that's why this is not clear cut and why the umbrage starts to rise. It says, wait a minute, I did that part, but he's saying that she chose a good part and we're going, wait, the serving is also important. Okay? Well, part of what's happening here is she's criticizing her sister. And there's nothing wrong with her serving. He even praises her. He says, you're careful and troubled about many things and I appreciate everything you do. But your sister is choosing to do something else right now, and it's not bad. It's okay that she's choosing this, and it's okay that you're choosing that. Uh, and it's not good for you to be careful of her If uh, Martha had not said word one about that, would we be having this conversation? In other words, her service would have been... The only, fact, only reason we're having this is that Martha brought it up. Yes. Right. You know, and feeling kind of like, how come everyone's helping and I'm doing this by myself? Dang. I know. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's the dilemma we get faced with, and then, then we'll look at the rest of it. And it was a thing, uh, and I struggled with this, this for actually the last two weeks. I've kind of been trying to understand in my own heart and mind exactly where we were going with this, and then it finally. Peace finally came the other night. I got all excited about it. Let me ask you this. Are we to be Mary or are we to be Martha? We are to be... Yes. In other words, here is the battle within each one of us. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons that this, that this experience does for us. Are we to be Mary worshiping? Yes. yes. Are we to be Martha serving? Yes. We are both. And the battle for us is going to be trying always to find that balance between the Mary worship and the Martha service. Does that make sense? What happens if we, do, if we go strictly Mary and we read the scriptures and listen to conference talks uh, you know, 18 hours a day. Then there's an awful lot, awful lot of stuff that doesn't get done, including the, the, the Christian service and the callings and the responsibilities that we have to other people. What happens if we become all Martha? 
We starve. We starve. We starve. In other words, and we burn out. And by the way, when we become cumbered with service, when we become distracted with service, what happens in the way that we view other people serving? We become critical. Do we not? We start, we're very fast to criticize. I wouldn't have done that because I'm all about service. And I would serve, and I, I can't believe that and I can't believe that people wouldn't be doing their visiting teaching and home teaching, just not doing it well. Some Lord, you ought to just get on them and make sure to tell the bishop that they're not doing it. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, Angel We become competitive because me is service, and it's about what you're doing for people, and my and my judge of myself and how I'm doing is in comparison with other people, and it, it better be like me, otherwise. If somebody's serving better, then I've got to somehow beat that because that my self-esteem is now resting on my service. And that's, that's the uh, comparison trap. Whenever you compare, either you fall short or you're better than someone else. And each person has to determine what's the proper balance for them. And that, you know, you, you can't compare, you can't, and that's one of the problems that she's thinking. She's already here doing this. How come she's not helping? That's right. Her problem was not in her service, which she did beautifully, and the Savior loved her for. Her struggle was in becoming cumbered, distracted by her service, to where that got overloaded on one side. Yeah. So that's why it's important that we take the time to sit at our Savior's feet, so we can distinguish uh, the times that we need to serve. And to do that, that we will be prompted when that's an appropriate time and not just doing it because, you know, I'll fall into this trap or it makes me feel good, not necessarily that it's going from the other person. <laughs> hey, here's one of the struggles that I've sometimes had in the church, and maybe and it's, it's part of what happens in my profession, is that I have well-meaning uh, church leaders um, that love very much the people that they're working with, but they're watching people that are struggling with depression and, and being overstressed and stuff like that. And we can be very, very quick at those moments to say, well, just serve. Just go serve. In other words, you're going to somehow serve yourself out of the depression. What happens with somebody who is already drained and they're not being fed... And they're already drained and we're saying, well, just go serve. Get out of yourself and just serve. What happens at moments like that? They go deeper into depression. They do go deeper into depression. Why? Because you've overloaded. You've got nothing else. You, you, it it, you're completely dry to begin with and now you're going to somehow push yourself to go out and serve. And you don't do it. Or, or you'll go out and do it and then you'll be resentful, dry, worn out. Yeah. Well, there is another side to that. I went to grief counseling when my husband died, and I was just in a horrible state. And then I got in there, and I listened to some of the other ladies uh -huh. told their situations, and I came out uh, being grateful for the blessings that I oh, had. Oh, absolutely. Now, when you were in that grateful place, were you now in a place to go serve? Yes. Yes. That's, the, that's what we're talking about. In other words, we must first marry worship, and then we can then Martha serve. When we have been fed, and now we are ready to go, now he says, now take that, that knowledge, now go forward and serve. 
When we try and do it the opposite and we haven't been fed and we're kind of doing it on an empty stomach or an empty heart, then we will be resentful. I went over there to help them move and they hadn't packed a single thing and I can't believe that they just didn't say just kind of sat around and did that and I just can't believe it. I took her meals because they had their baby and they just didn't seem very grateful and the husband just didn't really didn't like what I was giving them and I just can't believe it. somebody's name twice. I think there's like two other times in Scripture. Martha, Martha. And you can hear it, can't you? Martha, Martha. You whom I love. Thou art careful and troubled about many things. Do you hear this as a criticism? No. Just see this. 
gently pointing out to her, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Now, here's the big questions then. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. We have a tendency to say, and Martha, thou hast not. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. What is the one thing that is needful? To do what? To listen to Christ. To listen to Christ. That, is the, that is the needful thing. One thing is needful, and that is to listen to Him. And He's not actually listening to Him at the moment, by the way. And Mary hath chosen that good part. We have a tendency to see that as Mary hath chosen the better part. And you have chosen the worser part. And that's not what he's saying. By the way, can, can I just, just so we know who he's talking to. Um, Where are we, Candy? We're lost. <laughs> I'm especially lost because I'm just starting to use this. Oh, good. Yeah, that'll do it. That's good. Okay, we're still in Luke 2, or 10. John. I know. Well, hold on. Don't wander too far from John. See, you're, the nice thing about this, you're going to be able to flip back and forth like I do. You're going to love it. <laughs> because we're going to go back to. I, I just want. I just want you to keep in mind who this Martha lady is. So let, we're going to hop over back over to John 11. Okay. Can we do that? And again, I don't want to tell the whole story about. Lazarus. But Lazarus has died. We're in John eleven twenty. When Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary sat still in the house. Mary is talking with the with the disciples. She's with them. Okay? But Martha's gonna go take care of things. Um, and She's going to say it to the Savior, If thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Just to that level of faith. But, and here's the one, 22 is amazing. Listen to what she's saying. But I know that even now. But I know that even now he's been dead for three days. And every other instance that we have where you have helped Jerry's daughter and others... He's, he's been able to bring people back from the dead, but never after three days. In fact, he is so dead, she's afraid he now stinks. Close by. And after, and after that point, even that's gone. So there's no tradition, anything that would suggest to Martha at all then there's a possibility here. But she said, logically, theologically for her. But even now, she says, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it unto thee. And Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. There is a level of belief and faith in this woman. She has spent time, Martha, worshiping. The faith is there. She's not just, I don't serve him and let, other, let Mary handle the scriptures. She, she knows, she understands there's a deep abiding faith in this woman. 
Thy brother shall rise again. She says, I know that he'll rise. And then he's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, And then watch what she does, by the way. uh, She's going to do that. 28. What, What does she now do? After she has this understanding, something's going to happen. He is the resurrection. He's going to do something. What does this wonderful lady do? In 28. She calls for her sister. She goes to get her sister. Something amazing is going to happen. Wait, wait, don't do it yet. Mary's going to want to be in on this. (laughs) How thoughtful is that? Because if it was still a competitive thing for her, it's like, it'd be like, let's just you and I go ahead and do this resurrection thing and we'll tell Mary about it later. She, she gets to miss out on it. It's not there with her. It's really not. Mary, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master's come and he calleth for thee. That's the other reason. Get Mary here. Uh, he was not yet into the town, but they're out by the tombs where Martha uh, came. So Mary comes. And what do the Jews do? And Jews generally, capital J, Jews, generally means leadership. It means kind of higher up. The Jews is kind of an activism for uh, the, the leaders of the, like the Sanhedrin and stuff. This is the Jews, capital J, that are there in this house. Tells you something about the prominence. And Mary's holding court with them. Isn't great? So... Um, the Jews then that were with her in the house and comfort her, she says, oh, she's going to the grave, but guess what? They come with her. She's going, to, and they all come where he laid him. Okay, and, and that's why Jesus wept. Then saith the Jews how he loved him. And some of them said he couldn't do this. Uh, again, we're going to probably hit this again in the fall. Uh, take away the stone, Martha. Um, And then, look at 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on Him. Both through the the heat, the, the raising up of Lazarus and because of the preaching of Mary. Again, I just need you to see the prominence that this lady had. Among the Jews, capital J. This is, this is a powerful lady. And Martha in her own right. So, if we go back then to... Mary hath chosen that good part to be a disciple and to walk with me and to preach the gospel. That is a good part. She, and, and probably the Martha is able, or Mary is able to do it because... Martha's holding down the fort at home. In the same way that your missionaries go out and serve, they can do that because somebody's here taking care of things and making sure that they have money to go serve. You are on a mission with them the same as they are. In the same way that... uh, Sister Jones... In the same way that uh, President Jones would be in the state meetings and things like that when he's a state president. How involved with, were you in terms of making sure that the home fires were still burning? Yeah. And taking care of what needed to be taken care of, which then freed him up to go do what he did. 
But as serving in a, a whether temple president or, or state president, it's a calling that comes together for you guys. In fact, I had somebody suggest yesterday in conference because uh, we were watching we were watching the, the grand procession at the end of conference. And they've now it's kind of cool, isn't it? It's like here come here come the apostles here, and then there's a line of wives down here, and it's like. The grand procession. They will line up here. Lord, tell Bednar, your sister Bednar, and they're coming down here. And I'm wondering how long it'll be before they have side by side seats up there. That wouldn't that wouldn't shock me either. The apostles and their wives sitting up because it's such a joint. It's a joint um, calling. The two of them together make that service possible, and there's both sides of it. One thing is needful, Mary hath chosen that good part to be a disciple to be with me, which shall not be taken from her. Okay, so, again, we boil all of this down. What do we get to? Um, we get to that point that we are, we have to balance our Mary worship and our Martha service. And, the, and I don't know that we ever do that completely perfectly well, but we, we flip back and forth on that. Um, Sister Holland on a pristinely clear and beautiful bright day I sat overlooking the Sea of Galilee and reread the 10th chapter of Luke but instead of the words on the page I thought I saw in my mind and heard in my heart these words Pat, Pat, Pat <laughs> Thou art careful and troubled about many things then the power of pure and personal revelation seized me as I read, but one thing, only one thing, is truly needful. Our loving Father in heaven seemed to be whispering to me, you don't have to worry over so many things. One thing that is needful, the only thing that is truly needful, is to keep your eyes towards the Son. My Son. <coughs> Whether we are in the service, Martha, or the worship, Mary, we always keep our eye towards the Savior. And that is the good thing. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, that was particularly good. Kevin, you know what that kind of reminds me of, and I can't remember, maybe you'll be able to remember this, that if even some of the, uh, I don't know, third country, that even when they are preparing their food, there are certain things that they do that remind them of worship. There is among the, uh, like the Guatemalans, as they're preparing, that they have an interesting three-stone heart that goes back to the creation, but when they're getting ready to sacrifice an animal for food, they're pretty quick to say thank you, that you did this for me. Okay? So even when they're doing the menial things, like, you know, preparing food, they're still keeping their eye focused or their thoughts focused. They are. On their Suddenly, Sister Holland said, I had true peace. I knew that my life had always been in his hands from the very beginning. The sea lying peacefully before my eyes had been tempest-tossed and dangerous many, many times. All I needed to do was renew my faith, get a firm grasp on his hand, and together we could walk on the water. And then teach others to walk on the water. That makes sense. 
All right. Now, I wanted to, I wanted to put this together with today's lesson was really supposed to be John seven and eight. The nice thing is we have, we actually have a chance to kind of take a look at it. We put together, and I wanted to put this together in a particular way. So I want to go now to John eight one uh, because there's another. Tremendous story here that I think should jump out at us. Because it's going to happen, it's happening at basically the same time. The Savior has been up on the Mount of Olives with Mary and Martha. Now he's actually going to come down, Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody, if you are a male Jew, you're supposed to. Sometime during the year, you're supposed to make it up to the temple to the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Remember that you've got the the Bethany. Uh, those of you better can probably tell me better. You've got Mount Moriah, and then there's the little valley of Kidron, and then it goes up on one side to the Mount of Olives, the other side to Mount Scopus, where BYU Jerusalem Center is, up to the Mount of Olives, and then Bethany is. Right up on top of that. So if you're sitting up on Bethany, you're looking down. So for him to go from Bethany down to Mount Moriah, he's going to have to come up and over the Mount of Olives. Okay? Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. Remember, the question was, and this is critical to remember, uh, he, there's a suggestion that he might be coming and he might not. If you, if you read John 7, you'll see more that there. The question is, is he gonna will Jesus of Nazareth show up? And the Jews on their side are saying, Will he show up? And can we get our hands on him while he's here? So for the most part, they don't even know if he's coming. He's kind of up there. Now he's gonna come down and preach, and he cannot not preach. He's coming down there to teach. Okay? So it says, uh, and early in the morning he came down into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. Okay, stop. You just see this for what it is. Did, did the, the Pharisees and Sadducees know that he was going to be in the temple that day? No. No, chance, no way that they were going to know. In fact, there was some suggestion that he might not even show up. Suddenly he's there. Isn't it fortuitous that if the plan is we're going to bring this adulterous woman and we're going to catch her in the act so that we can then bring her from the act up into the temple surrounding and drop her in front of the Savior, isn't it fortuitous for them that they just happened at the morning that the Savior was teaching to actually happen to run across a woman in the act of adultery that they could use for their object lesson. But not a man. But Leviticus 2 says you need the man and the woman, right? So we're just going to leave the guy behind. So so maybe the... Okay, so is this is this fortuitous coincidence? Oh, no. Has this been orchestrated? So much. Because not enough, and just understanding, it's going to take a little while. He's here. We need to get the object lesson ready. Probably go hire her. 
I would think. Go hire her, and and by the way, we're going to hire her to do something that, by penalty of law, by this person in the temple, who what he claims to be is the one who gave the law in the first place, by penalty of law, she is now doing something that the penalty should be death. So on top of that, there's scare and death also for the man. But we're not relieving him out. That's why this is a setup of the highest order. And, and to me, the most incredible part of this is the, is the incredible callousness that we want to make a point, so we're going to take this woman who already feels how about herself? Oh. And we're going to suddenly take her from the, this act, in the middle of the act, we're going to break in, we're going to grab her. Can we know where, where is he at? Okay, he's over, he's over there by the porch. Okay, go get her now. Okay, they're going to run in, grab her, drag her, probably throw a blanket around her, or, or drag her naked. I, I don't, could have been either one. And haul her literally from that moment, run her up the, up the steps, into the temple where she's probably looking to crawl inside of herself and plop her in front of Jesus of Nazareth and you've got all of this row of the Jews, capital J, surrounding her. Okay? Can you get this, get this moment? And they say unto her, Master, and I, mean, I always picture that with kind of a sarcastic kind of boy. This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. How convenient. But Moses in the law commanded us, stop. Here's the first little lie. Who commanded this? God did, not Moses. But we are, we're going to get into a second, we are the children of Moses. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Now, why would this be such a temptation? Where's the conundrum here? What if the Savior says, kill her? The law says, because how many times people come to him and say, what am I supposed to do? What does the law say? The law says this. Okay, then go do. Why wouldn't he say in this case, what does the law say? It says stone it. Well, then, you know, break out the rocks. Why wouldn't he do that? It's the law. He's putting aside Mosaic law, though, wasn't he? He's what? Putting aside Mosaic Part of what they've been hearing and part of what's gotten in an uproar is he's saying the law has been... Fulfilled, and now we're beginning to step above and beyond that. It was the lawgiver. It was the school school teacher. Schoolmaster. Schoolmaster. Okay. Yes. You don't command God, right? But would but in that case, wouldn't the rule giver have said so? Her. Except what have you been preaching? Love, forgiveness, 
Repentance. And the ability to repent. How many people have even saying to you, your sins are forgiven? Now, what if he says in that setting, your sins are forgiven thee, which they're about to be. Your sins are forgiven thee. Then what? Then what's the problem? Yeah, number one, because they're, they're always on and saying, who is this man that says he can forgive sins? And on top of that, it's kind of the justice that says there has to be the law, you're breaking the law. Now, if he's going to break the law, now are they justified to like grab him right at that moment and haul him off? Well, of course we had to do this because he was commanding people to break the law of Moses and that's not allowed. And so we can go ahead and grab him now and start. And he's still got six months worth of preaching to do. They had set it up. Yeah, right, exactly. So he must have been able to figure that out. Well, hold, hold on to that for a second. Exactly. Um, what sayest thou? This he said, tempting him that he might, they might have to accuse him, to, to uh, arrest him and to kill him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, interesting moment here. And there's a lot of speculation about this, and you can choose whichever one of these you want. Because <laughs> the, the question is that even if you just go to the Google and thumb it and put it, what was Jesus writing on the ground? I got about eight possibilities that, God, that biblical scholars think that he might have been writing. One was he's doodling <laughs> rather than talking to him. <laughs> is there anything else that he might have been writing? Their sins. Both Bruce R. McConkey and James Talmage both say that the sin that they were guilty of was the same sin as her. And he talks about those who are without the sin of adultery cast the first stone. Could have been that he was writing Leviticus 2, you know, where's the guy? What if he was sitting there taking their names? <laughs> Anias. Where's Caiaphas? Oh yeah, Caiaphas. In other words, he's just recording. Okay, let me just make sure who's accusing. And, and he's writing there, which would be enough. That's kind of, that's my preferred. I think he was writing their names down. What'd you say your name was? Oh, I know your name. <laughs> Better than Santa Claus. He knows whether they've been naughty or nice. <laughs> so he's going to write them down. <laughs> okay? We don't know what it is that he was writing. But he's also not answering. <coughs> but enough, it's, it's enough to scare them off. I was going to say, it's powerful enough for them to recognize that they don't want to be there. See, that's why I think it's not just doodle. If it's just doodle, he's just stalling. But if he's writing down our sins... There's something about or my name. Whoa, that's mine. I, I'll see you guys later. So what are you putting down like Kevin, you Sin. Sin. Yes. Yes. But you, you know, but by the way, hold on a second. 
Did, one of the guys that we joke about in church history the most is Jay Golden Kimball, the swearing apostle. Do you know he did that once in a bar? He stood up trying to preach and they were, they were railing on him and he said literally, if you guys keep up, I will start telling you what your sins are. Ah, adultery. You, you've been sleeping with your wife, and with his wife, uh, you stole from your neighbor, and he just starts pointing them out, and the bar empty. <laughs> That's Jay Golden. Okay? Yeah. So, this is another interesting thought of how it could be is in the footnotes, it says, when it says where he wrote on the ground, it says, Jesus Christ teaching motive. And it says he was teaching in the temple, so these people interrupted him teaching. So maybe he's just continuing to teach whatever he's teaching. He's ignoring them for a little while yeah. while he lets them kind but, of But if he started teaching, do you think he was teaching about forgiveness and love? And You know, he would have, whatever he's teaching, whatever he's doing here is causing such great consternation that these guys are going to boost. They're out of here. They, this is, oh. Okay? That's why we're going to get this moment when he says, uh... So they continued asking. He lifted up himself and then he said, He's without the sin. Again, the sin of adultery. First cast a stone at her. Then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they heard being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even at the last. So the head guy goes, probably Caiaphas or Ananias or something like that. Oh, okay. If he's not standing up, then we're going to start going. convicted their own conscience. They leave. Jesus was left alone. And now listen closely. This might be an element that you miss. If you're a woman who has been caught in adultery and you've been dragged right out of the axe, but right in the temple, right in front of the Jews, capital J, and, and, and right in front of this man in the temple, and your accusers leave, what do you do at that point? Run. Would you run? Finally, the accuser done. You'd get you'd beat feet out of there as fast as you could go. I, I'm so uncomfortable here that I'm going to run as fast as I can go. The first opportunity, they're no longer holding on to me, grabbing me. I'm getting out of this place where I feel so uncomfortable. What does this lady do? She stands. She stayed. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing. 
Brother and sister, she's not going anywhere. At the very moment where she could finally be released to run and escape and hide and go away and no longer be an object of example by all these people standing around, whether she just got a blanket around her or she might even be naked. She stayed. Why? Why would she stay? Yes. What she feels in his presence is not threatening. It's not accusatory. And she stays. And it could be the very one of the first times in her life she's ever felt loved and cared by a man who usually used her. Now suddenly she's being loved.
And he said, we came in, we invited her back in, and he said, I'm authorized, basically, to say to you that the same thing that the Savior said to the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn thee. Thou art forgiven. Go in peace. And here's your temple record. He said that she sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. He said, I've never been in a meeting like that before. But he said, I knew exactly that I was to extend mercy and love to her and that she was to hold her temple recommend to me. And he was still he was he was still weeping while he was trying to tell me about it. He was like, but he said, can't even tell you what that felt like for us. What an experience. And he says, and I knew the Lord loved her. And that this was exactly he said, by all rights, there was a pretty good chance she might have been excommunicated in this case, but I knew so completely and deeply what exactly was supposed to happen. That that repentance was complete on her part and that the Lord was now ready to say, come back and serve. But we never know. Now, in the, in the time that we've got remaining, let me, let me finish with one last thing. Um, part of the Feast of Tabernacles at Sukkot in Jerusalem was this, was this ceremony where they would take water from, from the pool of uh, Shiloh in a, in a golden uh, dipper and they would walk it all the way back up the old city step into the temple and then they would put, it up, put that on the altar that it was, that, that, and, and there would be a, this procession trumpets would blow as this water would enter the, the temple sacred to them okay? and the Savior is going to take this opportunity to talk about himself being the living water now, the best place that I've heard to kind of understand this is, again, we have to go back to Elder C.S. Lewis. And, and, I want, and, and quote from the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and bear with me on this. This is, this is the girl... And she's lost in the woods. She has not met Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure. This is her first meeting. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as she'd been turned into stone, her mouth wide open. She had a very good reason. Just on, the, on this side of the stream lay a lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forked paws out in front of her like the lions of Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved as she tried and couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure to get a mouthful of water first. <laughs> if you're thirsty, you may drink. 
For a second she stared, here and there, wondering who had spoken. And the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And she realized it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had not seen its lips move this time. She had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, <laughs> said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you... Promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, <laughs> said the lion. <laughs> do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, men, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms said the lion. He didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor if it were sorry, nor if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And you know the next line, do you not? There is no other street. That's this God we worship. That there is in Him a source. And that He is the living water. And there is no other stream that will quench the thirst that we have inside us. But it requires for us to be swallowed up in Him. It requires that we be changed. It, re it requires that we worship at His feet. And then we, and then we serve Him with all our heart. It requires that we be brought into His presence, sins and all. And then be healed. And be loved like we've never been loved before. There is no other strength. I pray that we can do that this week and take the things that we have heard this weekend and use it to bless the lives of others throughout this week. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What's, what's next week's lesson? That is a good question. <laughs> I'll, I'll look that up in a second.
The rumor is that it's John 9 and 10. Yeah, I'm hoping that's where we go. Hi, Kevin. Find him? I'm getting the library. Uh, I talked to the missionaries. I told them that he's going to go back there by, by the MT of one of them. They said it's only if we're going to come right now. I suppose it's not in the library. Where do I go from the home? Do you know, that's just sitting right here. It can't really be anywhere else. You need to be in the... Uh, you need to be in that... Uh, in the lost or found. If not, we will... We will search around and find it. Did you lose, Millie? My keys. I mean, not my keys. My, my 